0: that you tend to skip over, I tend to skip over when we read the Bible through the year. But we're taking time to look at them during the season of Lent. So please give your attention to God's word as Maggie reads it for us.
1: A reading from Leviticus. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as firstfruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd, and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord." And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male lambs a year old as sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave with them the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks, be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you take your word now and would you use it to change our hearts? Leviticus is such an intimidating part of the Bible for so many people. And I pray that you make it clear. Thank you, Jesus, that you're here. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. We're in a series on what probably is arguably the hardest series to preach, if you're a preacher. The feasts of the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 23. Have you ever heard a sermon on the feasts of the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 23. Probably very few of you have. More of you perhaps have studied them. But it's a very obscure part of the Old Testament. But they present to us a very, very important question. Because all of scripture is God breathed. And it's all meant to change us. Why would God. Why would God give Moses. And why would Moses give the Israelites. All of these obscure rules about Feasts in Leviticus. Think about where they are, the Israel in the story. You remember the story of the Bible? Creation fall after the fall, right? The flood after the flood. You have the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Jacob has. 12 sons one of them is joseph who ascends to the heights of power in egypt becomes essentially the prime minister of egypt and then he brings all of his family he brings his father and his brothers the same ones who sold them into slavery into egypt to survive the famine and there's a pharaoh that comes to power and he does not know anything about joseph or his family and he sees all these israelites and he goes man there are too many of these guys Let's use them like our hired labor. And let's unionize them into our indentured servants. And so God does with Jacob's family exactly what he told his grandfather he would do, Abraham, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 32. He says, I will afflict your people for 400 years. And so for 400 years, Israel is afflicted. Actually, if you count from Jacob or Isaac, if you count down, it's actually... 190 years until they go into slavery... ...and then 210 years and they're actually in slavery... ...but 400 years. And a guy named Moses... ...who you you know about... ...you've heard about Moses... ...rises up... ...from amongst Israelites... ...who's adopted by one of Pharaoh's daughters... ...who is the prince of Egypt... ...right? ...who then comes and rescues his people... ...out of captivity... And Moses pulls them out. He rescues them through the ten plagues They cross the Red Sea. And here they're sitting in Mount Sinai, in the wilderness. And God gives them in the wilderness, he gives them ten laws, also called the Ten Commandments, which we were studying earlier this uh, fall. We're going to pick them back earlier this spring. We're going to pick them back up after Easter. And in the context of God giving them these Ten Commandments, Moses writes out for the Levites... All the rules that they are to follow in order to present God's people holy unto God. So here these people are, in the middle of the wilderness, looking up at Mount Sinai, wondering, why in the world are we out here? Egypt was better than this. And Moses has the audacity to read these people, read to these people, this detailed exposition of these feasts that they are to start following. Why would he do that? He would do that because God is trying to give them back cultural liturgies and community practices that they have not known for 400 years. God is trying to pull them back into a kind of community that makes them distinct, that can be their own. Think about what it would be like if if you had... Five, no, let's say ten generations, 400 years. That's ten generations of your people. Your, your father, his father, his father, his father. And all you've known every day is you get up early in the morning and you go out and you serve Pharaoh. You do exactly what he says. And you do that, friends, for 400 years. I just want you to think about the kind of psyche, the changes in the psyche that would have on a people. That's like saying that we were in in bondage to England since far before the Revolutionary War. It's a long time to be enslaved as a people. And God says to them, look, you've lived a life of black and white, of shades of gray. I'm going to show you what color looks like. I'm going to bring back to you cultural liturgies. I'm going to bring back community practices that are going to define who you are are and shape your loves now what in the world does that have to do with you and with me everything because we may not be in bondage to bad things like Pharaoh but you know what we are in bondage to good things like power and money and sex Good things that God has given us. Not bad evil things like Pharaoh and taskmasters that are over us. But good things in our life that have become over desires and have crippled us. And the Bible calls that sin. And as much as Egypt, or as much as Israel was enslaved in Egypt for 400 years then, much more dare I say that you are enslaved to things today. You and I live lives of black and white. And when God pulls you into worship each Sunday, he's pulling you into technicolor. He's trying to show you what the world looks like in color under the beauty of the cross. Sin is kind of like, if I can explain it this way, it's kind of like, you know, on your settings button when you get a new TV and you're trying to adjust the color contrast? And it's like in black and white, and you're trying to add more color. Sin is like you're punching the color button, trying to get it to show the hues and the colors, and all it's doing is making it more gray and black and white. Sin does the opposite intention of what you always think it will give you. And you know what I'm talking about, because you take things like sex, and you turn it into pornography. And it's a slavery far worse than chains. Or you take good things like food, and it becomes to dominate your self-image. And it cripples you. You know what I'm saying? So this passage has everything to do with us. The Feast of Weeks shows us how to get color back into our lives. It shows us just what Nathan read for us through the Westminster Confession. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, how do we enjoy God forever? What does God want? Three things He wants from this passage. Are you ready? Three things God wants. Number one, look at your sermon outline. God, number one, wants you to celebrate. God wants you to celebrate. Now, the book of Leviticus is... A book about how to worship God. It's a book about how to live differently, worship differently than the pagan nations. And seven times a year, Israel were to hold these feasts, these parties. And three of those feasts, you'll see those in bold in that chart that's on the sermon outline. They were to travel all the way to Jerusalem. All the men were to travel to Jerusalem. And they would often pray the prayers of ascent that are in the back of the Psalter, the back of the book of Psalms, as they marched into Jerusalem. And you think, well, what does that have to do with us? They had seven feasts. We don't have feasts today. The feasts of weeks is shot all the way through the Bible. It's called the Feast of the Harvest. It's called the Feast of first fruits. Every male had to attend. It was a holy convocation, which just means it was a holy day. It was a Sabbath, all the stores were closed, nobody worked. It was a time of holy rejoicing, and the first fruits were presented to the temple. Now, Blake, this is great. Seven feasts for Israel. Listen, we don't have feasts. We don't have seven. But you know what we do have? We have 52. Because every Sunday when you come to worship God and you come to, the, come to worship him in community, do you know what that's called? Paul explicitly calls that a feast in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Let us keep festival, he says to the Corinthians in chapter 5. Paul is calling worship, the worship together of God's people, the festival of God. Now we don't have seven with all of these details about bringing your lambs and your goats and your bulls to the temple. But we have 52. Why? Because God intends worship to change you. And it matters. Like some of you are fighting distractions about what you're going to have for lunch. But this hour of the week is meant for God to use in the context of his people to help you see his beauty and his grandeur and his glory worship for god's people matters because these feasts are magnified with the coming of jesus not into seven but into 52 and every time you come to worship you come to enjoy the lord but there's a problem isn't there there's a problem because you and i hear all the time well listen i can be a christian And I can love Jesus and I can be right with God, but I I don't really like the church. Like 80% of people in Tulsa say that. Did you know that? Barna tells us that in this city, 80% of the people say, I can be a Christian, I can walk faithfully with God, but I don't really need the church, I don't need the community. That is not what scripture teaches. Well, people say, well, what about the thief on the cross? He didn't have a church. Don't use that as the rule. That's the exception. Why does worship matter to God's people? You know, you, know, um, you know, in Matthew chapter 28, you know, in the Great Commission, you know, what does Jesus say to people just before he ascends? Just before he ascends, he says what? He says, behold, or the, the, new King, or the, uh, the King James would say, lo, lo. Lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. And we hear that and we say, oh, well, Jesus can be with me. He can be with me in Owasso. He can be with me in Bartlesville. He can even be unto me in Kansas. (laughs) And it is true that Jesus will be with you in Kansas. But you know what Jesus is saying there? Jesus is not saying that I can be your, your individual personal Savior wherever you go that's a horrible heresy jesus says you plural and we don't have you plural in the english language unless unless you live in alabama or texas maybe and you can say you all because jesus is saying i will be with you all i will be with you in the context of community and yet so often We think, well, you know what? It doesn't matter if we go to worship on Sunday because I can just be good with Jesus by myself. The Bible does not teach that. In fact, the Bible assumes that you are in community. Which is why church is so important. Not because God wants to see that you're there and love you more. He can't love you any more than he already does. Nor can he love you any less if you're his. He treasures you. And you come to church, just like Israel came to the festival, in order first to celebrate. Now, let me, uh, before I move on, let me work work on this idea a little bit more. Because we hear this whole idea of you can be good with Jesus without the church all the time. There's a place in the Four Loves that C.S. Lewis writes um, about his friendship that he had. You know, C.S. Lewis had two very, very close friends, J.R.R. Tolkien and a guy named uh, Charles Williams. And um, he tells the story of um, when um, Charles dies. And he says, listen, um, it's a great tragedy. It's a great tragedy, but at least now I can get more of Ronald. That's what he called J.R.R. Tolkien. Charles has died, it's horrible, it's, it's awful, we miss him. But at least now I can get more of Ronald. But you know what C.S. Lewis actually found out? That he actually got less of Ronald. He got less of him. This is what he says. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, far from having more of Ronald all to myself, so to speak, I have less of Ronald. I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to one of Charles' jokes, for example. So, listen to this. We each possess, we possess each friend, not less but more as the number of those with whom we share him increases. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that we feel like we can, if, we can just keep, if we can just keep our friends just to ourselves, we'll, we'll get to have more of them. C.S. Lewis says, no, we actually possess our friends not uh, less, but more as the number of those with whom we share them increases. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself. For every soul seeing Christ in her own way communicates that unique vision to all the rest. Increasing the fruition that each has with God. So I could like go row by row and I could say, tell me your story about how Jesus has opened your heart and changed your life. Now you share how Jesus has opened your heart. Each of us would help us see not less of Jesus, keeping him all to ourselves, but we would see more of him. It's like the vantage point you have right now. Each of you see a different angle. And it's the same with the Lord. He intends his people to help one another see the beautiful facets of all of his love. Are you with me? That is why worship, friends, is so important. And that is why not only is worship important, but knowing each other in community is important. That's one of the reasons why anonymity in the church is one of the greatest evils for the sake of the gospel. Yes, people are there and they're hearing the gospel, which is fantastic, but we need to see Jesus together because each person in this room has a different glance and image of their beautiful Savior. And I need to see that image because I've got blind spots, and so do you. This is why the seraphim say in Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy to one another. They're helping each other see beautiful pictures of the throne room of God. Lewis brings out the fact that instead of getting more of Ronald, he actually got less of Ronald. Your temptation to avoid God's community makes sure you think, well, I got more of Jesus. No, you actually get less. Because it's in the context, lo, I am with you all, always. It's in the context of community that Christ wants to be known and where he's present with us and among us. And you can't can't know Christ as you should unless you know other people who know Christ. And you learn from them different aspects of the beauty of Jesus. And that means you're sharing stories together. That means why in community groups it's helpful not only to study God's word, principally we should do that, yes, and we should be consistent in so doing, but also sharing stories with each other because that's how we help see beautiful aspects of our loving Savior. And why is that the case? Because Jesus is a real human being. He is not somebody you research because he's dead, he is alive. And you know, real living, breathing human beings, how? In community. First thing God wants you to know is he wants you to celebrate he wants you to celebrate that's why he gives us the feast of weeks secondly not only to celebrate in community but what he wants you to know him intimately now look at the details of this feast lower your eyes to the text it says that you shall offer him a burnt offering and a grain offering and a food offering and a sin offering you shall bring from your dwelling places. Listen, in Leviticus 1-7, to there are five different kind of offerings that you can give to the Lord. And here in this week, in this Feast of Weeks, the Lord demands four of them. And not only does he demand four of these offerings, but he says, I want you to bring from your dwelling places. Which means, for an Israelite to hear this, it's saying, like, I want you to bring from the innermost drawer in your wardrobe something for me. I want you to reach into the most intimate part of your home and bring something for me. Because their dwelling places were like where they slept. There was a one-room tent. And so they were to bring seven lambs. They were to bring a grain offering. They were to bring these other things that the Lord tells them that they are to bring a bull and two rams, these ten animals and these two loaves. They were to bring them from their dwelling place and they were to bring them to his in the holy temple. Now today, we don't need sacrifices, because as Chris read, we have Jesus Christ, as Hebrews tells us, who was the once for all sacrifice for us. But what does it mean to go from our intimate dwelling places and bring something to him in his dwelling place? What is that but what prayer is? To bring the deepest recesses of your heart before the throne of God. Not only are you to celebrate, but you are to know him intimately. God wants you to know him intimately. And the way he wants you to know him is through the practice of prayer. Now, Augustine, um, St. Augustine, wrote many, many years ago to a, a noble Roman woman who was a widow. Her name was Andicia Fatonia Proba. And in one of his letters, it's the only letter that he wrote exclusively on the subject of prayer. He says to this woman who's a widow, he says, if you're going to learn how to pray, there are two steps you need to make. Step number one, are you ready? He says to her, this very wealthy widow, he says to her, you need to count, despite your earthly circumstances, you need to count yourself utterly desperate before God. The word he uses is desolate to the world. You need to see that no matter how great your prosperity may be, you've got to count yourself desolate before the Lord. That is to say that if you are worshiping things first that ought to be fourth or fifth, you are repeatedly seeing how those never satisfy you like you want. And instead of worshiping first what should be fourth or fifth, Augustine says you've got to count yourself utterly desolate of having anything of value before the Lord. And of saying that yes, Jesus, my career does not satisfy me principally. My 401k or the amount of money I have does not satisfy me ultimately. The power that I have by my position, that's not what does. You have to count all of these other lesser gods in your life as utterly desolate with respect to the world. And then, he says, dear Probo, once you count your life desolate, then do you know what you should pray? Augustine says you ought to pray for the exact same thing that everybody else prays for. A happy life. Because once you understand the first principle, namely to count yourself utterly desolate... You know that everything that you would ordinarily pray for, Lord, give me more of this. Lord, protect me from that. All of that begins to change because you see that it is the Lord himself who's able to satisfy you. And you begin to pray, Lord, make my soul delight in the richest affair. Make me delight in you. Be for me the satisfaction my heart so longs for. And then he goes on to quote our call to worship today. One thing I have desired of the Lord, this one thing I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and behold the beauty of the Lord, that I may go into his temple to feast and stay there, to feast in prayer. Listen, God wanted Israel, and God wants us to know him in his holiness. And he wants us to celebrate Which is why he doesn't give us seven feasts. He gives us 52 every week we gather together. And we celebrate the beauty of his goodness for us. And he wants us to know him intimately. That is, he wants us to develop a deeper prayer life. He wants us to bring things from our inner dwelling place to his dwelling place. He wants us to learn what it means to come to him. And to pour out your hearts to him in prayer. Do you? Or do you, are your prayers kind of like, as the poets have said, kind of like worrying in God's direction? You're worrying, so you're just kind of going to lean your worries toward God. God, help me out. I'll cry out to you when I'm in desperate straits, when I'm in dire straits. But Lord, I won't talk to you normally because I just don't think I need you. One of the marks of growing as a Christian, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, is that we pray ceaselessly. That is that your mind is always attuned to the fact that you are desolate without him. that You have no hope without his presence and his peace. So what does God want? He wants for you the same thing he wanted for Israel. He wants you to celebrate. He wants you to know him intimately. And lastly, there's an extra line, forgive me in your handout. He wants you... To enjoy him forever. He wants you to enjoy him forever. How do you know this? How do you know this from the text of Leviticus? Here's how you know it. Because 50 days after they celebrated the barley harvest, 50 days after the priest waved the sheaf of barley before the people, before the Lord, 50 days later, he brings out the better harvest, doesn't he? It's the wheat harvest. They celebrate wheat because wheat is more nutritious. It takes longer to germinate, longer to harvest, but it's more nutritious for the people. Do you remember, do you remember in the gospel when Jesus, when, when Mary is clinging to Jesus, and Jesus says, Mary, please don't cling to me. I must go and ascend to the Father. He's like the sheaf of barley being waved before his father. He's saying for the world, I have resurrected, I am risen. And he waves himself for 40 days before the world. And you know what happens? 50 days after the resurrection. They gather to celebrate. What feast? The feast of Pentecost. And at that same feast of Pentecost, the exact same feast that they are following, these exact same statutes. What does Jesus give them? What does he give them? He gives them a better harvest. And then he says in John 14, 16 and John 16, 16, he says, I'm giving you another comforter, a better, another comforter. So that my presence isn't just where I am, but my presence will indwell you in the person of the Holy Spirit. God wants you to enjoy him forever forever. And for you to enjoy him forever, he is not saying, well, come, sing songs, come, come to worship, come, come walk out with cool t-shirts. No, God is saying, I want you to come because that is where I want you to have my spirit. And if you, by faith, trust in the finished work of Jesus, he doesn't just say, hey, I'm so glad, keep it up, keep serving me. But Jesus gives you his spirit. That is what the Greek word for weeks, for 50, is Pente. That is where you get the word Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost is the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament. And today, the greater gift that God gives to you is not just a festival. He gives you His Spirit because He wants you to enjoy Him forever. And do you know why God wants you? Why God wants you to celebrate Why God wants you to know Him intimately and why God wants you to enjoy Him forever? Because you are His harvest. We are His harvest, friends. And we exist not to navel gaze as a church, but we exist for the good of our community in Owasso. You exist for the good of the company for whom you work. You exist for the good of your community group. You exist to be salt and light in the world. This is why Paul says... For example, in Romans chapter 12, again, Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. How can you do that but if you have the Holy Spirit? Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Don't overcome, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul says, you are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is of life is in you because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. Listen, friends. The feast of weeks in Leviticus chapter 23 is to show Israelites today, you and me, those who are joined in union with Christ by faith, That we are to have some color to our lives. That we are to enter into community when the world says I can be a Christian without community. That is just simply not the case. That you can know God intimately through the practice of prayer. You can draw near to Him. He wants to know you, He already does. He wants you to understand how beautiful He is. And He wants you to enjoy Him forever. That's why God gave the Feast of Weeks to the Israelites in the Old Testament. It was to be a reminder of his incredible provision for them by bringing them out of slavery into the freedom of his presence in the wilderness and one day into the land. And today, God gives us the incredible freedom of the wilderness dwelt by his spirit. And one day fully, when we are glorified, he will make us whole. He will, if you will, bring us into the land of glory. For his joy and for his honor. But until that day comes, we are his harvest. Let's do that. Resting in Christ's sacrificial work for us. For he was the lamb that was slain. You brought nothing to the table but your sin. And he was the burnt offering. He was the sin offering. He was the grain offering to bring, your, bring us back together in fellowship with one another and with the Lord. So, God wants you to celebrate. God wants you to know him intimately. And God wants you to enjoy him forever. We are his harvest. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll help us In a world that says you just don't need community to know that we do. And that you pieced back together the community of Israel. And you began to do that through feasts. And so Father would you help us to run to worship every week. Because it is where we get to enjoy you. It is where we get to be changed by your word preached. It is where we get to enjoy the feast of the Lord's Supper. We pray that you'll change us by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.